Hello and welcome back to the Sun I Have Cancer podcast. I wanted to stress that because I got the name wrong in the last episode. Uh, once again, I'm joined by my dad, Chris. Say hello. Hello. Good. We're, we're keeping the same. <laughs> we're keeping the same fluency from last time. Um, Good. Obviously, uh, I spent the last week away from you. The first episode went out when we were. Uh, separated by however many miles there are between our home and where I was. And um, it's I think it's 300, 300, yeah, whatever. Not to be um, helpful. Not to be helpful, but 300. No, not to be helpful. Yeah, people listening might want to go to Brighton from home. Yes, they might. And I was trying to keep the two places out of it so we could keep a little bit of anonymity. But if you want to tell them where I was and where we live, that's fine. Um, but yeah. The response was pretty good. Everyone seemed to like it, didn't they? Um, I was conveying everyone's messages back to you. It seems like the, despite me being the journalism student, you were the the host everyone preferred. Um, perhaps it's because everyone respects you for stealing my money and using it for Amazon Prime and Netflix and such. But anyway, uh, not to sound bitter again. Um, That's all right. <laughs> last episode, we spoke about your diagnosis and then your surgery and we touched a bit on the fact that um there was some time we'd spent together it was about a month where you were off work um so in this episode i suppose we should take people through from the surgery to when you eventually i, I said that with no judgment went back to work um and then maybe the phasing into getting used to being working again because there's there's obviously not as strict of a timeline as it was with the last episode where things happened on specific dates because, well, you had your surgery and you went back six months later, but there was no, you know, landmark moments in there as such. So there's <laughs> landmark moments. I su- I suppose the first place I want to start is obviously I ended up taking a job, right? Um you so did. I and it's yeah. good for you. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm appreciating you interrupting me every time. Uh, I ended up taking a job before you had your surgery and kept it until around the time you actually went back to work. Um, I wanted to sort of gauge, I'll give my own thoughts on that, but obviously we touched a bit on it at the end of the last episode, I think. What did you think about the fact that Rather than continuing to look after you as it as it had been when we when it started, um, how did you feel when I decided to go off and do something else? Because it was about four weeks where I helped look after you, and then I went off and got a job as a waiter at a restaurant. Um, what were the emotions, the thoughts for you when I did that, especially whilst you were recovering? Pleased. I was really pleased you went because you needed to go and do it. It's the experience you needed to have, and I could. Was quite able to make a mess of looking after myself, and to be honest about it, going out and being a waiter wasn't something you'd thought of doing, and it was, it was quite entertaining to see for me to see you get dressed up in your work clothes and head off to a restaurant, have you coming back, berating the other waiting staff, the kitchen staff, the owners. It I was, never did that. I was a, a model profession. No, I was a model employee. I never would have done that. No, you wouldn't, would you? 
just I, I'm worried about my future job prospects now. People are going to have a distorted opinion of me, Dad. You've got to make me sound like a good you employee. You were a very good, you were enthusiastic, and all that money you made, which I've now stolen from you to fund <laughs> my Netflix addiction. Yeah, I did enjoy that the day the episode was published. Um, the you text me saying that. Uh, a free trial you'd taken out on the Amazon Prime was going to run out at the weekend and you needed me to cancel it. I did enjoy that sort of, yeah, we spoke about that actually in the episode and now my day-to-day life is still being affected by it despite it being public condemnation. I quite like these things, to join in and sink away together. But that's not what you wanted to talk about. You (laughs) wanted to talk about going to work. I was really pleased. I was proud of you going to get a job as well. And not being dependent on me. Because obviously it makes me sound like a bad son, I suppose, when it was literally my one role was to look after you and help you. This was before the recovery. So I suppose it was to keep you sane whilst you're at home. But I guess what was it like going from having me around day to day? I don't want to make this all about me because this is more about you. So I suppose in the anticipation of having the surgery what's it like going from having me around all the time to then there was a bit of time when it wasn't mum it was just nobody so what was that transition like to being me to being nobody to being mum looking after you let's say it was a novelty having you around but it was much more as having you around and spending time with you which we often get to do shooting the breeze and just talking rubbish and watching strange things on the television like Archer. Um, Because just my own psychopathology, I quite enjoyed it when I was on my own between you and your mum looking after me because I quite liked being on my own with a a good book, warm cup of tea, an entertaining film on the telly. Of those sort of three periods, I guess each of them have their own sort of pros and cons. So when you were around, it was around getting to know you, getting to know the things you watch on the television, working out how to wind you up and have nobody have any idea why you're getting so steamed up about things, which is quite an interesting thing to discover you can still do when your son's growing up into adulthood. Um, Then having time to myself to actually reflect and think because, and again, it drives you insane, I know, but I don't, deal with things until there's a thing to deal with. So sitting around worrying about something that hasn't happened, isn't likely to happen. The last time it was going to happen was cancelled at the last minute. No point in doing that. And as we got closer to the day to go and trundle up to the hospital again and see if they were going to be open or if they had the reason for not doing the surgery, it was time to think about what it might be like because all the books you read and all the DVDs they send you never really prepares you from someone cutting open your tummy and uh, fertling around in a very vulnerable part of the body. So you've, you've touched on it, so I suppose we should bring it forward. You've had the surgery. Uh, you've been let out because that was, you know, there was a bit of time between having the surgery, us getting to go and see you, and then you've been let out. Um, not like a bit of time, not meaning like two months, but it was a day, a day it and was a half. Less. It was less. I, mean, I, was, 
I was told I was going to go in for a good four days and uh, your mum was quite looking forward to having me out of the way for four days and um, they needed the beds so uh, I was in for a lot less I think I went in on the Tuesday morning and that's when the operation was you came to see me on the Tuesday afternoon which apparently traumatised you I'm really <laughs> surprised at that because my memory of it is is very hazy I much more remember the Tuesday evening after you'd gone when the pain relief wore off and I found myself surrounded, not surrounded, in between a man who was asleep all the time and a, a posh man who complained all the time and because of his tone of voice and the fact he kept saying he knew the chief executive meant all the nurses went to sit with him. Some poor old sod who was um, dying and a man who no one seemed to care much for because he was very quiet. It's a lesson in life, don't be quiet because uh, he was the first one of us they said could go home. And then his wife came to collect him and berated him the fact he was going home. And the other chap in the corner was much like myself, a bit younger than everyone else, thinking, where am I? The, the first night in hospital properly was the night when the uh, nurse call broke. And so from midnight until two in the morning, there was just a buzzer going off every 15 minutes, which did mean they gave me more pain relief, which was, was very pleasant. Um, and as I think I said before, I was tucked into the bed quite tightly, connected to a bag, which I weed into, which wasn't something I wasn't meant to do. That was part of the treatment. But um, so when you came on the Wednesday, and I think that was, I remember seeing, you came in the afternoon and it rained and your mother had made you walk in the rain and you were very wet and I couldn't work out um, if you were irritated with being brought to visit me or irritated by the fact you were very wet. And uh, your mum seemed to find it was very funny that uh, you were very wet. And we said, um, see you Thursday. You went and then they turned up and said, oh, you can go home. And that's memorable because of a couple of things. One was I hadn't been out of bed until that point, and so they had to get me out of bed and show me how to deal with the fact that I had a catheter rammed up my penis and I was connected to a, a bag, and nobody gave me any sort of sense of how did I manage that. And um, myself and the other guy who was sort of one of the younger ones, who well, I only know as John, were both in the same predicament. They came around and uh, helped me up, helped me into some clothes, taped my bag to my leg, helped me on with my trousers. And if you've never had a, a catheter up your penis and a bag of urine on your leg, I would say it's not easy putting your trousers on. <laughs> I would also and, uh, say don't try it unless you need to. Yes, don't do it for a party game. Don't do it for a student freshers bet. Do anything like that. Uh, don't do it as you say just for any sort of gamble um, so while the two of us were being sort of sent home they went off to find um, what are called TTOs which is your medication you take home with you and my memory of it is ringing you up on my phone and then the nurse going off to get John up and because as you can imagine staggering around with your bare ass and your 
penis in a bag of urine isn't the most dignified of things. They did do him the dignity of drawing the curtains around him, which was unfortunate for him because then the nurse went off to deal with someone else, came back and started dealing with me. And I did have to say to her, don't you think you should finish helping John, who was patiently waiting behind the curtain, and called out, cheers, mate. I assume that was something he wanted to have done and he didn't want to be left sitting on the edge of his bed. And when she came back to me, she unplugged me um, from my grip and that meant taking the cannula out of my hands, which spread blood everywhere. And I don't like the sight of blood at the best of times when it's my blood and uh, I'm on the edge of a bed that's just been made with clean stuff and it's like squirting everywhere to say to the nurse. Um, isn't there something we should do about this? And she was much more concerned with the fact I'd bled on my phone, which didn't really bother me at all. So she then scuttled off and got some wipes and was cleaning the phone. And as I was trying to hold the bandage on the back of my hand, saying, I'd much rather you put a plaster on this. Um, she then sort of realised what the problem was and sorted me out and stopped me bleeding everywhere and helped me on with my shirt and then uh, turned to prove my medication and both John and I had to say we were promised some anaesthetic gel mm -hmm. where the catheter goes into your penises and I said oh do you really want that and we said well <laughs> you bet we do <laughs> so they went off and they only had uh, a packet of ten of these little syringy things and we had five each because that's the modern world of sharing and caring. And uh, by which point your mum turned up to collect me. And as an experienced person dealing with the NHS, she knew the things she had to bring was a box of biscuits. So we handed the biscuits over to the nurses and I limped across to the car, which was um, incredibly painful. And uh, we then went home and your mum was very carefully arranged which have a nice chair to sit in so I could watch the TV. And uh, I was sat your, down. Well, I was going to say that was your home for a, a good portion of the next month because as you were getting to about getting in the car and stuff, having the catheter, cath the pronunciation, uh, yeah, yeah. and the uh, bag strapped to your leg, that was, you know, it, from my memory, uh, watching you progress to being able to walk again was quite a you know interesting if that's the correct word experience because um if you think about sort of people who have to relearn to walk that's usually something you think about when they've broken a leg or had major surgery on an injury or something similar uh it's not something you think about for a cancer operation i know that sounds very silly perhaps but this was the first indication to me and still is the first in my mind anyway, that you can need to learn to walk for far, you know, more different things than just a broken leg. You know, you, it wasn't that you needed to relearn to walk, but going from being able to put pressure on both feet as you could before to suddenly it was painful down one side because of, the tube and the bag it was just interesting from from an objective outsider's perspective to actually see that progression because it didn't exactly click in a week two weeks you know because 
you, as I say, you were sat in that chair for a good portion of the next month because there was Christmas, New Year's, your birthday, where we're not going to be, we're horrible people, me and mum, but we're not going to be forcing you to go uh, walk 15 miles a day during that process. Well, you can speak for yourself. Your mother made me walk. Hmm. Um, the, yeah, so it was really odd because you suddenly realise you can't, well, you have a catheter in and that's very painful when you're moving and you've suddenly got a weight on your calf, which is a, a bag. And it's, um, it's quite odd because you jar yourself. And um, yeah, it's very hard because we did say we were going to talk about um, health things and men's health things. And talking about catheter being up your penis is sort of that. Moving into that sort of area, are you saying this just to shock people or, or what's that about? But it was, it was a novel experience, not one I'll go looking for again, but it was really uncomfortable. I mean, it's like an obvious thing to say, but in the most bizarre way. So sat in a chair, you're comfortable, you've got yourself snug, you're watching the telly, and suddenly you move and it's like, oh my God, I've been kicked right yeah. in the nads. And I remember, I'll tell you, as soon as I was able to stand upright, your mum had me walking around, and bizarrely, she wanted to walk to the local cemetery, which I was a bit perturbed about. And looking back, I did wonder if it wasn't some sort of ghoulish thing on her part. But just that 40-minute walk was very, very uncomfortable. I remember one night we went out to try and I think the morning had been rainy and we hadn't gone out and we we're walking and I just couldn't get the gate right I could not get, manage to walk properly swing my legs in the right way and it was like somebody constantly giving a go to the, uh, the old gentleman's area and um, we had to go back and I was amazed just how painful it, I mean truly I mean, I'm not it's not like being injured on a battlefield or something like that, but it was bloody, bloody painful. And um, it's one of the things that, again, you read about it, but they don't brief you on that. They don't say to you, this is going to hurt a lot. And um, so, yes, so sitting, sitting and trying to get a routine because we'd get up and have to, um, well, very dull routine, wake up, get up, empty my bag, have a wash, try and go to the toilet, get myself suitably dressed and comfortable, go for a walk, come back, have some breakfast, fall asleep, annoy you by being asleep because you're going to work. So you'd usually turn around, he's asleep, I've got to go to work, he's sleeping. And then usually mum and I would sit and have a conversation or something in the afternoon and then try and get out again for a brief sort of something, a drive in the car or something. But most of it was, as you said before, I was sleeping a lot. But it is major surgery, although it's made to seem like you're on the production line and it's a conveyor belt. Not just for what they do, but because it is in the middle of lots of very small blood vessels and capillary vessels. So what they are digging around in, 
the slightest thing can damage it. And it was what I hadn't realised until I was on the Wednesday morning on, on the bed was the man who I thought was my surgeon came around and said hello. And then a stranger turned up and actually done the surgery, a man I'd never met. And I couldn't really work out why my sort of lower abdomen wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be because I had surgery a quite a large incision to give the man a lot of room. And the doctor who did it was a doctor who was um, the robotics expert. So he basically did what for him and probably people who like robotics is quite exciting. There were just four cuts in the tummy and a robot goes in and does all the surgery and what's on a screen. But the downside of that is there's not that much room. And even though it is, I'm trying to think of games when you'd have a joystick because you don't have joysticks anymore, but it was basically a man moving a, a trigger arm around inside. Like an, an, like an arcade game rather than like a video game, like a proper That's arcade machine. And uh, yeah, so the chances of damaging yourself. So I'm suddenly sat around thinking, oh, should I be having these pains? But also, I have four, mm, two centimetre, two and a half centimetre, maybe three centimetres, as long as gashes in my abdomen, which are incredibly uncomfortable because suddenly I've uh, got home and I'm not on my pain relief anymore. And I think. That, I think it was, it was the 19th of December that I took the catheter out and that was when I uh, went back up to the hospital. And that was another great day in the NHS because we went up and um, caught up my chum John. And uh, yeah, the, the, the nurses basically pulled the catheter out. And um, if you know what a, a wall plug looks like, well, that's what a catheter looks like. So that's how they push it up. But if you know what a whirlpool looks like, when they're pulling it out, it's rather painful. So the nurse basically said, you're very worried about it and you're very anxious about it. But what I'm going to say to you is, if you start to count, I'll just pull it out and see if you notice anything. I must admit it wasn't as painful as I thought it was, but when I saw it had been up there, I thought, bloody hell, that's, that's uh, not a good thing. And then I sat around for a couple of hours drinking lots of water so the sure I wasn't bleeding. But then myself and this man, John, thought we were going to see our consultant. So we sat, and your mum was probably going to hold it against me because she had to sit there too while we waited. And John suddenly saw the nurse and said, look, I'm going to have to put my money in the uh, parking meter. What time is the consultant coming? And then she went and made some phone calls and came back and said, oh, he's not coming. He's on holiday. Um, they'll send you an appointment out. So that was then me done and dusted in many respects. It was just um, sitting and getting through Christmas. Uh, it was not as bad as some Christmases could have been. It was quite nice to have permission to sit and do nothing and not have to get involved in things. But, um... I was, I was going to ask you about that because obviously there were three, like, let's, let's say three landmark occasions. It was, you know, Christmas, New Year's, and then your birthday is a January birthday. Obviously it's the back end of January, so it'd been more than a month. But 
you were still, you know, not at 100% capacity. Um, I can't remember exactly what we did for your birthday. I think we went for a meal, didn't we? Um, we went out to Pasco's, I'm pretty sure, um, which is obviously so. a, a local restaurant. But uh, rather, rather than just telling everybody where we live, I might as well just basically give them directions. Please. Yeah. Please. Give them directions by telling them all the local places that they can go to. You remember there was some other family dramas going on, and for my birthday I had to go and help one of us up to uh, yes. their work. That was still the thing. And go and see, sort some work things out for them. But um, yeah, so I was, I was prudling along, and as I said, the surprise at just how much it takes it out of you, because everybody now in... in medical world and the NHS is saying you, know, you have an operation get back on your feet right away keep going your mother is a nurse person had that as their ethos but I was really surprised just how <laughs> I'm tired all the time it makes me rip Van Winkle but it's not that sort of tiredness it was it was the tiredness you get when you're travelling and you haven't done anything and your eyes are burning and your limbs are heavy and you just don't know why you're tired. Um, so the walks we used to do around the block, we'd done that a few times, capital was out so we could go a bit further. Nothing untoward, nothing, we're not talking about rucksacks and hiking across the moors or anything. But I'd be getting tired for half an hour, 40 minutes. And there's no reason for that. I wasn't attached to machines or anything. I'm not in intensive care. And it's what it comes back to is it is major surgery. The damage they do and the bits they're near are very vulnerable to, to things. Very much a war film and the man gets shot in the stomach. It's always meant to be you know, the painful death because of where it is. And it's incredibly uncomfortable having somebody cut out a bit of your body and then try and come back to terms with that. And so the January was a combination of excursions and pottering around and doing sort of quality of life things and then sitting around feeling pretty knackered. So I'd already by the time I'd had the surgery got bored of daytime television, daytime detectives and the news. So I was keen to get out and do other things, but this is, um, it was a, a long drag to my birthday, but then very shortly after that, I had my first uh, meeting with the consultant, which was when he prodded and poked me and said, you know, how impressed he was with his surgery and explained his robotic arms to me and uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing they are and asked me the uh, usual questions they ask around uh, incontinence and impotence and pain and a whole sort of set questions around what I do with pelvic floor exercises and that sort of thing. And then he explained that they'd be doing blood tests and what they hoped for was that your PSA, the reading they get, gets a lower and lower number. Uh, and that was the first sort of realisation that um, you know, you, you've, you're going to be living with cancer for some time because uh, the guy says, you know, 
We took out the prostate gland and the 12 lymph nodes in that area and unfortunately the cancer has spread to the lymph nodes. So we're going to be watching you uh, look at once a month uh, at some point and I hope to see you in February to see how you're doing. So I went in February, had a blood test of GPs and the, the numbers which were it's very low. I mean, you're looking at numbers that don't even sound like numbers. So zero point zero zero two something. You know, looking at that sort of number. I then had quite a long conversation with your mother, and well, quite a shorter one with you, where I made my mind up. I, I would not go back to to work as quickly as I'd planned on doing, for all sorts of reasons. I've never been off work sick, but also needed to change my view which had been based on the information from the doctor based on what i'd read i'd chosen the most um, dramatic radical um major response which was to have the the surgery in the belief that that would be it that then i'd be a bit unwell for a month or two and bounce back the idea that the cancer was still there hadn't really dawned on me and left me doing a whole lot of that sort of introspection that people need to do at some point. The what's it all about? Why have I wasted my time doing this when I should have been doing that? Um, what's a quality life? What makes uh, life worth living? Those sorts of questions. So although I wasn't at work and uh, we were going out on excursions and doing fun things, a lot of the stuff was around um, thinking, um, being introspective, thinking about life, thinking about um, thinking about what makes it worthwhile, the things that give you pleasure and the things that don't give you pleasure and going to work, getting involved in the office politics and the grind of going in and sitting around and meetings and that sort of shite wasn't really a priority. So I took um, I think five months in the end, so I didn't go back until March, April time, by which time I'd gone back to see my man, consultant, January, February, and then again at the end of March, and the PSA numbers were rising incrementally. And then one of the things that I... I don't do very often you always watch the news watch medical programs which makes it pretty dull because your mum loves medical programs but when watching the covid stuff probably around april time when they were talking about really small numbers one of the government scientists said uh, in science these small num percentages of numbers are actually incredibly significant which is a sort of random moment of depression you get because my PSA numbers went from 0.002 something to 0.07 and then quietly over 2019 and 2020 have gone up and that's Sort of not something you'd expect to happen. So sort of getting better at the same time, you're living with an illness that you thought would gone away 
it's quite an odd psychological and emotional thing because you, I went back to work and I'm not sure if you wanted that for this sort of episode but they, they gave me a project to do to get me back to work but because I wasn't a skeleton and yellow skin coughing up blood everyone was oh we look really well and you say to them well you know that's how did it go and I said oh well and it spread from it to my lymph nodes and they'd say oh that's wonderful Mm. Here's a piece of work for you to do, yeah. and um, that's it's quite odd because people's perception that it is a hard one. It's not something we talk about. We don't talk about illness. We don't talk about um, men's bits. We don't talk about diseases and illnesses that are well. We do. We make laughs, laughing jokes about them. We talk about cancer of the bum and things like that, and everyone is quite relieved. But um, it's quite odd to to prootle around at work around people who forget very quickly that you've been ill and people forget that it's, it does sound very melodramatic and i don't want to sound like some sort of whatever the, the term i can't use because it's politically incorrect for a person who is self-absorbed and narcissistic and just not getting on with life but um I'm sure there's a word you can edit into that little segue there. No, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> You're lost? Yeah, I'm trying to work out what word you might mean. You said it's politically incorrect, so I'm trying to... Uh, you sure. see, I'm, I don't like it when people talk about being wimps or wusses. Ah, uh, okay. Those words, uh, those, those words also carry with them a sense of masculinity and stuff that is just quite bizarre. And... Mm isn't one I actually hold with because well, I wouldn't be doing this if I was some sort of alpha male who gets on with it because as you said, you need to talk about these things. But the other side of it is you just don't as a culture talk about it. It's not a man thing. I work in a, an organisation that is 80% women. And once I was back at work and I'd had my, well, you're back at work, there's your desk sort of thing, we've missed you, get on with it. Um, there's no big discussion of you know how you're doing when's your next appointment um have your appointments been affected by covid this assumption is because you're not a skeletal figure coughing up blood and looking like you're about to pop off the the planet is um well it's like you're fine you're fit enough to play the game get on the pitch and that's um it is quite odd so as you said, uh, getting well, recovery, rehab, or however you want to phrase it, is um, within the context of still being ill, still waiting to know what's going to happen, um, still waiting for some sort of sense of where do we go with it. Um, getting back to work was interesting because I've got a project to do, and it was probably the most fun I've had while I've been at work in a long time because I just went to work and did my work and was freed up from all of the other bits of being at work, which was, was really good. Um, I didn't do long hours or anything, and I came back and got into quite a nice routine of watching you go to work in your smart outfit mm. and thinking, gosh, you well, that, very that, that was the back end of me working there, because obviously... I had my 
big trip. I, I, I went to, I obviously went to uh, Vietnam with Simon, uh, my brother, for 15 days in the middle of May and then stayed down south and met uh, a couple of his colleagues, if you can call them colleagues, uh, farmers who he works with in the coffee industry. Um, because I was house sitting because they had a festival and such and obviously not making this by myself but obviously that was something that I was saving up money for was to afford that and also to you know get money get some experience on the CV because at the end of the day those things are important and as you say you had a, a moment of introspection quality of life you know what is a good life and so on when they told you that the the cancer had spread and stuff and you were sort of thinking well I went radical I went for surgery I went for the most difficult thing kept my options open and it's done nothing I'm still living with it just it's not enough to deal with I don't know it's hard to explain obviously some people who are listening will know because they'll have been through it or they'll have spoken to me about you and at the moment, at this current moment, we're talking about, you know, back when you first got tested, it was 0.00 whatever. It's now at 0.7, right? That's what, that's the number we've been talking about. And it's, when I took that job, I wasn't thinking, you know, go and cradle up loads of money so that I can retire early because I didn't earn enough money to do that. And I was sort of thinking, if you get yourself into a position, um, Especially, especially around that time, you were having the quality life introspection. I was thinking this is a horrible job. I think Mother's Day was what tipped me over the edge. That weekend itself was horrible. I mean, I think my phone, the health app on your phone tells you about how many steps you've got, right? And my phone is still telling me that I'm like down 3,000 steps on average a day because that weekend, that Mother's Day weekend last year whilst I was working in the restaurant, I did about 70,000 steps between the two days. And my phone just cannot deal with the fact that those two days are like that high above the, you know, you're looking at me on the screen, obviously people can't see the video, but that's there and I don't manage anything below here. Like I get 10,000 a day max and I went and did a weekend where I got 70,000 and that's just a constant running around. And that was the weekend where I told the guy, the manager there, that I was going to go back. And I did have all the intentions after coming back from traveling to go back. But I just thought of that weekend, all the steps, the lack of, you know, gratitude from customers that we've given up the full day to deal with them, you know. And that's the, that's the thing about the hospitality industry. You need to work in it to understand just how horrible it is. Because... It's you give up all of your free time to look after these people and very rarely do you get people who are willing to say thank you. It's not even about tips or anything like that or the wage. Those things do put you off. Obviously, if you've got shared tips like we did and you're earning minimum wage, so like five pounds an hour it was for me. I think it took it ticked over to six pounds in my last month there. But I really I'm I was 18 at the time, uh, a couple of months off being 19, and I was having the I don't want to do this. And when you're 18, you get to make that decision of, I'm not just not going to go back. You were at an age where you can't just drop everything, right? You keep telling me this now when I say, you know, do you not think about doing something else or, you know, retiring? And we can talk about that a few episodes down the line when we talk about the future. But 
you know, we can sit here and talk about my wanting to give up that job, wanting to do nothing as an 18-year-old, be lazy, sleep in till 12, play loads of tennis and then, you know, get get very drunk and then sleep in till 12 and just do doom, like do um, Groundhog Day, just repeat that day over and over again. Um, well, become a student and sleep in and drink lots and that sort of thing. Mm. But <laughs> you've thrown me off. But this is about so as this is about you, not me. Because at the end of the day, I've had all of those different introspect. You know, I've had those. What do I want to do? I went off. Uh, I'm doing journalism at uni. But even now, whilst I'm at uni, we'll have conversations. Whilst, especially whilst I was away from home, we'd have conversations, and I would think I'm going down a career where at some point I'm going to be like you. Um, and I'm going to be like, I don't want to be involved in the office politics. I don't want to be dealing with people, you know, having a go, people not getting along, trying to give people tasks that they're not going to mess up. It's not that you don't trust them. It's just that you want something done properly because you've got to have a bit of pride in what you're, what you're doing. I mean, I know you're not, I know you're, you're not going to admit it, but I do think you have some pride in the work you do. You just, you pretend like you don't you pretend like it's the worst job in the world. Um, and I can see you covering your face in embarrassment. Don't worry, the people can't see you, so you don't need to do that. But listen, the the thing I'm getting to is you had those thoughts whilst you were off and then something must have clicked because the one thing I was going to ask you about was you took on, it's not like a major project, but you and mum, I won't take any credit, I didn't do anything. I could happily sit here and say that I took massive part in it and everything i just complained the entire time because it was my inheritance but you did up the house right so people maybe wonder what house i'm not talking about the one we live in now but you owned a house that you hadn't sold when you moved in to live with me and mum because obviously that wasn't that wasn't before i was born or as soon as i was born that was a couple of years after when you officially finally moved in with us Let's not talk family politics about why that was or anything like that. We don't need the, the history lesson. But you kept that house available to you. And then last year, April time, whatever time of the year it was, you started doing it up to sell it on. And I want to know, you, you're thinking about going back to work at that point. You're recovering from major surgery, as you've said a few times what made you want to do that house up and sort of why why did you take on that as your project before you went back to work what was the appealing nature of doing up a house and selling it on oh it's almost daytime television program that inspired me dion dublin was it was it uh homes under the hammer was that what that's the kind of thing um one of the things I'd started to do and realise is that I had a lot of stuff and I wanted to start getting rid of things. And it's not got rid of a lot of the things I need to get rid of. But bit by bit, you start looking at things that are valuable and aren't valuable. Your mum stopped working, so we only had my income to support yourself and your sister and your mum. So to think very carefully about where the money we had was going to go and what we were going to do with it. So the house was a luxury and it was a very, it was a very tangible way of letting go of something. Um, originally I'd done it up with your granddad and he and I had spent, 
probably 18 months, probably every weekend and most of my holidays, uh, repairing it um, because he was a, a craftsman, a, a man who knew timber. It had to be done to a standard. So that had been quite a, a big commitment from him and a bit like you and me watching the telly. It was one of the few times he and I had had uh, time together to sit, eat sandwiches, pretend we were working, talk crap, put paint on a wall. He'd show me how to make joints. I wouldn't be able to make joints. He'd do the joints. That timber thing was not smoking, by the way. So yes, I was going to say, we, we did have to we clarify. Weren't that, yeah. we, weren't, we weren't that sort of laid back in the family. Um, we're still not. We're still not. I don't well, don't stare at me you. like that. This is an audio podcast. You can't just stare at well, me. <laughs> I was just thinking, I won't tell you, Mum. <laughs> so I just want letting go. And as I said, it's part of that thing is about um, probably like a lot of people. I, I've filled up my life with a lot of stuff. And when it comes to it, stuff isn't that important. And letting it go became a sensible thing to do. It, it was obviously a big thing. And as I say, I was quite grumpy when it was getting done up because there was, it, we keep talking about my brother, my sister, your, you know, the, the reality is that that's, it's two separate families that have come together through mum. And so that house, from a very selfish point of view, at the time I was there going, well, I would inherit that house. And if, you know, Obviously, I wasn't thinking he's going to pass away tomorrow. I really need something from him that's tangible that I can see. But, you know, the reality is when something major surgery, you've still got it in your system. Because at the time, you told me, you hadn't told me how much was in the system. You hadn't really filled me in on that, um, you know, how bad it was. But in the back of my mind, there was, well, they're doing this all up and they're going to sell it. And then there's nothing, you know, tangible for me in the will and my inheritance from you. And it wasn't like I'm there thinking, you know, I want him to die so I can get the house. That would be horrible and terrible thing to think. And that wasn't anywhere near my mind, but I was sort of thinking, well, look what happened to Phil's house. Obviously Helen and Simon's dad. And I was thinking, I don't want the same situation where Phil's brother comes flying in and saying that he's going to, that it's his house rightfully because it was never phil's it was his dad's and all of that family politics is going on i was thinking i don't have any of that because it's just me like it's your house i am the next i am the uh next of kin i think that's what it's called so you know i was angry that you were selling on what was essentially my inheritance but now looking at it i understand the need for the family to have money especially when I'm off at uni, student finance, you know, rent, everything like that. But at the time, I was sort of thinking, how dare he? And actually, I think it was quite a good project. From the outside, I don't know how you and mum felt about working together. But from the outside, it looked like something you and mum were, you know, it was some quality time you two got to spend together away from everything. You didn't have to be in this house, which after five months or whatever it was in the house together, was quite important and none of us were there it was just you two um and you know i don't know what you thought i don't know what mum thought but for me i thought it's probably a good thing that they actually get to spend some time 
together away from everyone else because for the last 20 years you had to deal with me simon helen at different times and so yeah i i don't know if that's something you really have anything to say about but i did think it was quite a nice project for you both to do and you know i'm sure you argued over what color the skirting boards should be and stuff but other than that it must have been a nice thing to do together i don't know um like anything like that yes you're right there's the arguments is the, the fact people see things differently but there were the bits when we had um a sense of achievement um when the guy came around and took the pictures from the estate agent and we looked at it and thought god we've managed to turn this place around and yeah that was a very satisfying thing it would be quite nice to suddenly be in a position to go and buy somewhere new and have another project of creating a home and having arguments and things about what goes where but uh, it was it was a set project doing a house up it is a, an interesting thing and yeah we uh, did it originally all those years ago with uh my dad your granddad he and i argued about stuff because it's very stressful mm. but yeah i mean everyone has done some renovation of something at some point in their life they understand sort of you've got so many minute decisions that when for example when i live in this house i never realize you know when i look around that there's so many different decisions you have to make you know what windows are you going to put in there at uh, that pointing audio idiot what windows are you going to put in what um what flooring what paint are you going to put on the walls what blinds are you going to put on those windows where are you going to put uh sockets and stuff like that there's a lot of decisions and therefore a lot of arguments to be had we've got stuck down quite a bit there in the house and everything else random things. Yes, yeah i mean I, I the same happened last week where we both sort of sat afterwards and were like i don't know if people are gonna like that we we just rambled again i don't actually know what we've spoken about in this the thing that Netflix, we, you, your money. Yeah, yeah we've spoken we've spoken about you going back to work so i suppose the next part has to be sort of it, it and when i say this then i want you to think of anything that it makes you think of for this bit but the next episode i suppose we should talk about actually being at work and as you say slowly but surely those numbers are going up and we'll get to the pre-coronavirus if you know because i don't particularly want to talk about that next episode that can be a separate issue is actually managing your life during the corona stuff because it's still going on let's not let's not forget but when it was at its height during the first wave um you know there are a lot of decisions you have to make about things especially when you've got a i would call it pre-existing condition uh you still have yes, cancer in the blood yes. um yes, so anything that you can think of for up to around let's say june when i got back from holiday of 2019 that we haven't talked about in terms of recovery because we've spoken about the long that you know not being able to walk and then getting that back and you know we've spoken about doing up the house going back to work all that stuff but 
to me, it was all a bit of a blur because I was working and then you were back to work when I stopped working. And so that entire period just mixed together because we didn't spend much time together compared to how much time we spent before to then that's basically nothing. So I was working the majority of the time evenings till late and then needing to sleep it off for the morning or working afternoons and stuff. We didn't really spend much time together. Um, and then you went to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, well, I won't make any Vietnam vet jokes because they're not funny. And, uh, feel, feel free if you can think of one. No, no, we okay, do. not I don't to embarrass you with your Vietnam experience. Um, so you went off and had some fun for the best part of a month. I was back at work. Then when you came back, it was your tennis season. So mm-hmm. it was just work and doing odd things. I think the event would be getting you to university because I never thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to bail out on that. So that was a big achievement. So we'll, we'll save that topic for the next episode because that's not something I want to explore in some detail. And um, getting a holiday with your mother and their children, which is very nice. Yes, I bet. I, I can't think of it. Can you think of anything we need to cover during recovery? I think we've, we've covered almost everything. We've got a few... You know, it's think... a slow steady thing when you get out of it and it does you have to work at your own pace i learned that you've got to push back to medics who just want you back on your feet and away from them so getting me fit notes from them so i could not go to work was a bit arduous at first and learning from that is get one gp you go to in the practice and stick to him or her because I didn't have that. My practice isn't like that. So I had random people at different times. So uh, one of them was saying, I don't know what I'm signing you off for. According to my book, you should be back on your feet after four days. And I was thinking after four days, I was hobbling around with a bag of wee on my leg. So that wasn't going to happen, mate. Um, And then I got a GP who just blindly said, oh, I'll just sign you off for eight weeks. Let me know what you want. And it's very stressful because LinkedIn with getting a fit note is not just getting paid, but the whole process of, uh, well, the fit note validates that you're actually ill. And I think there's still a culture that um, if, you, if you're a boss and a manager like me, you talk about sick note culture and everybody throwing sickies. But if you've actually been ill, you get to sense that it's not that easy to get a, a sick note and get anything from a doctor to say you can have time off work. And the other side of it is making sure that the GPs understand you need medication. So I didn't get any pain relief from a GP because it's all he would prescribe is paracetamol. And I could buy that cheaper. I'll send your mother out to buy it cheaper from the supermarket. Um, I didn't get any pain relief until quite until this year. So I had recovery without pain relief, which is interesting. I feel like we should call this episode Recovery Part 1 because this was sort of the first, let's call it the first six, eight months of uh, post-surgery 
recovery. And then the next part, I suppose, is going to be actually being back to normal up to the coronavirus, because then that's that's um, you know that's completely different. Uh, that's changed the world, not just for you, for me. It's, that's for everybody. Um, so the next episode, I feel like we should talk about sort of that, I don't know, six to eight months there was between you being back at work, everything being normal again, to then the coronavirus. And to sort of entice people, we're going to delve into that university comment because I'm quite upset by it. And actually, something I wanted to talk about in this episode, but I'd rather keep it for the start of the next one and talk about how when you were back at work, the same applied. I want to talk about using humor and stuff like that as a coping mechanism because it was something I was going to interject. Um, you were in the middle of like a long-winded sentence and I was going to just bring it in and talk about it, but I'd rather save it for a proper long chat rather than sticking it on the end of this because I do want to talk about that because I think a lot of people know that it was your style was to deal with it without you know properly talking about emotions and stuff was to just joke about how you're feeling you know we've seen it already joking about having the catheter in and the bag of whey and the the cuts and stuff because I feel like in the next episode we can get proper insight into how actually keeping some distance between proper raw sadness anxiety stuff like that um you know you can keep some distance apart from with yourself and your brain, you can keep distance from everyone else from the proper emotions by sort of having a joke with them. And they'll still be thinking, you know, in bad ways, they'll still be thinking about, oh my God, he's got cancer. But you can sort of make it seem a bit less touchy by going, ha they cut me open. Because that's sort of the mentality you had was to sort of have a little giggle and tell a joke and make it seem less serious. So. I can't think of anything else to say apart from, you know, do you want to do the goodbyes again? I think you did a good job of it last time. Well, thank you. It's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him. And I'm being Chris and he's been Sam. And next time we might swap worlds. <laughs> I'm not sure we can, but yeah, fair enough. See you in the next one.